Memorial Day. Veterans Day is a day in which we thank those who have served. Armed Forces Day is the day in which we thank those who are serving. Memorial Day is a day that we acknowledge those who have given their last full measure to ensure the privileges, the freedoms, and the joys that we enjoy every day. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for this great nation of ours. We are grateful for those who have given their last full measure. We may never know their names, and we may never know their circumstances, but you do. And Father, we enjoy today the fruits of their sacrifices. And we pray, Lord, that we would never take for granted what they have done. We're grateful for the privilege of being able to gather in this place, for the freedom to do so, to lift our voices in praise, to open your word, to worship you without fear of persecution, without fear that men will come flocking in with weapons to drive us out. But most of all, Father, we are grateful for the love of Christ, the sacrifice, the redemption that was accomplished upon the cross of Calvary. For it's in his name we pray this morning with great thanksgiving. And all of God's people said, Amen. Join me this morning, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The last few times that we have been together, I have taken you to chapter 3, and as we've been discussing and exploring the qualifications of the pastor, I shared with you then that my objective there was to jump ahead in my schedule because of the time frame in which things were coming to pass here. And Kathy and I rejoice that uh, God has led you to the under-shepherd that uh, God has prepared to lead you, to minister to you, to feed you as the days, the weeks, the years, until Christ returns. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. We're going to be taking a peek at some of the things that Paul had to share with Timothy. Now you understand that Paul is writing to Timothy with the intent, oh, you know what, I just totally went right past it. Oh, my word, how can I possibly do that? Ralph, I am, I am failing. I got an F in grandpahood. Good night. Mackenzie May, she was born this morning at 339 to my youngest and his wife. And, uh, goodness gracious, Mackenzie was nine pounds, eight ounces, and it was a natural birth. Women are out there going, no, they're not, I'll just leave that one alone. <laughs> but we're rejoicing that uh, in God's blessing and God's provision and uh, the joy of life 
the joy of life. And I have to tell you, at 3.39 in the morning, I didn't bother. It didn't worry me. It didn't, uh, it didn't uh, frustrate me at all that my sleep was interrupted to be told that I had a granddaughter. I have to tell you, though, that I also rolled over and, yes, I eventually went back to sleep. But I did roll over and I prayed. And my prayer was that God would deliver her from much of the anguish and pain that our culture seems to be headed in. That he would give her strength and faith, the perseverance to make a difference in her life. May that be true of all of us. Okay, First Timothy chapter 1. Oh, mom and, mom and dad are doing great. Grandma and grandpa are doing awesome as well. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and following. We're looking at what Paul is writing to Timothy. Because Timothy's a young pastor, he's inexperienced. Uh, well, inexperienced in terms of being the shepherd of this local church there in Ephesus. Uh, and he's writing to him to give him some words of encouragement, some words of instruction. And is, is often the case, uh, just as with all the epistles, Paul warns about the false teachers and the different things that are going to be a part of that ministry. And one of the things that Paul is, is emphasizing as he writes to Timothy is here are the things that you need to stick to. Here are the things that you need to hang on to. These are the things that you need to disciple the believers therein, there in Ephesus. In verses 12 through 17, he is going to be sharing with him some of the things that are the benefits or the results of sound doctrine. Now, some people may say, well, it's not really important what you say as long as you're just expressing the love of God. And if you've learned nothing else from me, I hope you've learned this theological term. Mitchell, you need to learn this one. Horse feathers. Yes, we need to express the love of God, and that love is expressed through the person of Jesus Christ. But we're also supposed to be teaching sound doctrine. The, the, uh, the emphasis, the command that has been given to us as pastors, as believers, is to speak the truth. To share the truth, to teach the truth, to preach the truth. And that is one thing that you will always find this preacher doing. And I trust and I I believe Pastor Andy will do as well. In preaching the truth, it doesn't matter what it is. Here it is. God said it. I, I trust it. What is it that old phrase said? And I think I've said this before. Uh, God said it. That second phrase is... Just erase that one. God said it, that settles it. That's all there is to it. Whether I believe it or not, it's settled. Now, these things, Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, is trying to encourage him. Here are the things that you need to hang on to. And in that process, in verse 12 and following, let me start here, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. 
Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First thing I want you to notice here in verses 12 through 17 are the results of that sound doctrine. The results of that sound doctrine. And in verse number 13, you'll find here, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I have turned mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul is painting a picture here and is using himself as the personal example. I shared in Sunday school this morning that I was going to share this with you. That one of the things that Paul is emphasizing here as a word of encouragement to Timothy. As you preach, as you teach, as you share the gospel, understand that no one is beyond the reach of God. You may be thinking that there are certain people that, that just, it's, it's impossible. There's just absolutely no way that that person's going to accept what Christ has done for them. And you may be correct. Maybe that person never will respond. But you don't know that. There is no one that is beyond the reach of God's love. And as Paul paints this picture here, goodness gracious, the picture of who he was in Christ, before Christ, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. And that's just putting it mildly, the kind of individual that he was. A blasphemer, what kind of a person is that? The word itself is, is something, in fact, I wrote it down here, stupid speech to injure, blaspheme. That's the root of this word. It's the idea of of injurious speech directed at God, in this case. You ever ever wonder why people use God's name in vain? Why do they use it as a curse word? I have yet to figure that one out. Well, I have some pretty good ideas. But here's my problem. Why are people going around going... Oh, Buddha. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Buddha's not God. And when these people are using his name in vain and they're using it as a curse word, they are blaspheming our God. And that should offend. That should offend. There was a time years ago before I knew Christ when... If I was offended, I responded. You know, those were, those were, those were fighting words. Paul is, he's describing himself as a blasphemer. That the things that he did, the things that he said were intended to dishonor Christ. And if you go back to Acts chapter 9 and you start to follow his life and the things that he did, in fact, you go back before that. You see what, what Paul saw at that point. What kind of things that he was doing to the followers of Jesus Christ. Because he did not believe that Jesus was God. He did not believe that he was the Messiah. Uh, back in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, you see there his persecution of the believers that were part of, of the life or a part of life at that point in time. Uh, in fact, let me quote it for you here. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. 
and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now there are a number of things that I find incredible in that passage here in Acts chapter 8. One of the things that I find incredible is the fact that here is the church being persecuted. And instead of cowering, what are they doing? (laughs) They're preaching the word. I find that courageous. But not only that, and if you know your history, you know what transpires here. That when the church is persecuted, instead of, of cowering in their homes, instead of hiding away, Instead of, instead of shrinking in size as one might expect, which the persecutors were trying to make sure was happening, the opposite took place. And that was all a part of God's plan, wasn't it? It says there in Acts chapter 8, they were scattered abroad. Well, what did that do? They all became missionaries. They were all approved by the, the appropriate agencies and they went out, right? They were persecuted and and they fled, yes, probably in fear of their lives. And they went forth and as they went forth in their going, as Paul, as Jesus told us there in the Great Commission, in your going, share the gospel. So they're sharing the gospel as they're going about, as they're, they're fleeing the persecution. And when they get to wherever it is that they're going to live, what do they do? They share the gospel. And other people are getting saved. Praise the Lord. There are times when, when I, in all honesty, I've stepped back and gone, God, in our complacency in Christianity today, maybe we need some persecution to force us out of our comfort zones, to get out there and to share the good news of Christ. Thank God for the, the, the freedoms that we have today. Thank God for the privileges that we have, the freedom to share Without fear of persecution, usually. But this is Paul, describing himself. He's a blasphemer, he's a persecutor, he was pursuing God's people. In fact, where did God, I hesitate to say it this way, where did God find him? As though he had to look for him. On the road to Damascus, where was he going? Why was he going there? He was going to persecute more Christians. In fact, he called them, I need to get there. He got letters of commendation, letters of recommendation, so he could go to Damascus and he could seek these people out. He could drag them off to jail. He could have them beaten and stoned and and just totally persecute them and and, and, and snuff out this, this movement. He called them the people of the way. People of the way. Why? Well, go back to John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. 14.6. So he's going after these people of the way. A persecutor. A murderer. A heinous man. Before I go too much farther here, let me stop and just say this. Before we condemn him, before we jump all over him for what he was doing, let's understand who he thought he was. A Pharisee. A Hebrew of Hebrews. A defender of the faith. 
He was zealous about it, wasn't he? I cannot fault him for what he believed to be true as a Jewish man, as a Pharisee. I cannot fault him for that, for his zealousness. He was defending what he believed to be God's plan. The problem was he wasn't reading the latest information. He hadn't gotten the memo. But God got his attention. Don't you love that phrase, but God? But God. So blasphemer, the persecutor, it says here he was injurious. That's the word in the, uh, the King James. Uh, it's an insolent man is the word that is in the New King James. It's the idea of, of contempt displayed through wanton and outrageous acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he be found, if he found any people of the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The word that is used here is one that would be translated today, the word bully. Bully. He intended to get his way, regardless of who got in the way. He was going to bully his way through. He was fanatical. He was a defender. He was just not focused properly. And what was the cause? What was the reason? Have you ever used this phrase? I did it in ignorance and unbelief. See how far that gets you. Cop pulls you over. You've been doing 70 and a 55. Oh, I'm sorry. I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Thank you, sir. This is the truth. (laughs) Paul, he uses that here. He did do it in ignorance. He did not know. Now understand something. People can be ignorant of the truth. Ignorant is not a bad word, though sometimes we put a negative connotation with it. Ignorant just means I don't know. There are a lot of things that I don't know. I do not know how to take my computer apart and put it back together and so it works. I'm ignorant. I'll call Kirk and he'll take care of it. It's not a bad word. It just means I don't know. And Paul did not, Saul did not know. He was in ignorance. All he saw was a threat to his faith. All he saw was a faith to his religion. And he persecuted zealously. He was in ignorance. And yes, he was in unbelief. Which, by the way, just real quick here, did you know that in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 15, that there is a, an offering that was to be made if you found yourself sinning in ignorance. You didn't know. You could bring in the, the, the lamb or the, the calf. I think it was a calf offering. You could bring in this calf offering. And that would take care of it. It would take care of the, your sin. And, and essentially, you, you'd be told to go, go and sin no more kind of a thing. Because now you know. And if you get a good officer that pulls you over, he'll say to you, did you not see the sign back there? And if he's having a good day, he's going to say, go and sin no more. Well, that was essentially the idea of this offering in Numbers chapter 15. There was no offering for unbelief. 
no offering for unbelief. You see, the offering for unbelief, in a sense, was the person of Christ. That was the answer. But there's a part of this that you need to understand. If a man or woman comes to the end of their lives and they're still in unbelief, there is no offering. That person is going to hell. Isn't that a sobering thought? I have neighbors, I have co-workers, I have family who continue to deny, who continue to reject the truth of Christ. And that is incredibly sorrowful and frustrating. Can't you see it? Why can't you understand? By the way, I know the answer to that even as I ask it. Because the devil's in the business of blinding people. Of blinding people to the truth. Why is it people cannot see the the obvious truth of some of the problems that we're dealing with in our culture today? Because they're blind to the truth. Maybe they've been fed a line that they bought into, the, the talking points or whatever it happens to be. You see, that's what the devil's doing today. He's selling his talking points and distracting us from the issue. The issue of Christ. The issue of our sin. Paul, in describing himself to Timothy, is reminding him that no one is beyond God's reach. A blasphemer, a persecutor, a bully, who did so in ignorance and unbelief. But you'll also notice here back in verse number 12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Jump down to verse 14, he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Excuse me, in Christ Jesus. The results, the results of God's mercy and of God's grace. The first one you see there in verse number 12. God's appointment for for Saul, or Paul as the case is. God had an appointment for him. He had this place on the Damascus Road where they would meet. And it's interesting, you go back and read Acts chapter 9, you're going to see there that, that Saul's reaction is an acknowledgement and recognition of who it is that is speaking to him. Isn't that incredible? When God opens his eyes and he sees and he understands, there can only be one response. And his response was one of faith. And you read verse 12 again. God's appointment, God's plan was to put him into the ministry. To take that zealousness, to take that excitement, to take that enthusiasm and refocus it in the right direction. Sometimes that's what we need to do with our kids. Instead of giving them a Xanax, we give them some purpose. Some objective. And if you have a problem finding that, let me give you an idea. Find a dairy farmer and send them out there to spend some time. Guarantee you that will give them focus. Or any other task for that matter. Paul had an appointment with God. God got his attention and he brought forth from that attention, from that appointment, faith. And love. Verse 14. 
And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. God had a plan for Paul. And that was to reach so many towns, so many communities, and so many people with the gospel of Christ. Whether he happened to be as the missionary on those journeys or he happened to be in jail. Can you imagine being one of those Roman centurions chained to the Apostle Paul? Oh, my word. And my understanding is that they spent a six-hour shift being chained to this guy. Those men did not walk away ignorant of their condition and of the solution. Now, Scripture does not report for us or record for us how many of them came to Christ, if any of them came to Christ. But I will not be surprised if I get to glory, when I get, not if I get to glory, when I get to glory, and I run into one of those Roman centurions. Let me tell you about being chained to Paul. Paul. God had appointment for him and had a plan for him. And if you notice in verses 15 through 17, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. 15 and 16 are the pattern. Are the pattern, if you will. He says there in verse 15, he's just emphasizing what I've been telling you. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And that's the title of my message. Chief, Chief sinning bull. That's who he was. That's who he saw himself as. And the pattern he speaks of here in verse, six, verse uh, 16 is one that, it, it's incredible. The faithful saying that he uses here. Uh, where to go? Verse 15. This is a faithful saying. The emphasis here is upon the truth. Okay, faithful saying. The idea, this is the truth. This is what you can share. This is what you can camp on. Number one, no sin is too great. No sinner too hopelessly lost to be reached. Paul the example. The purpose in verse 16, the first part of verse 16, however, for this reason I obtained mercy. A demonstration of God's mercy in the Apostle Paul. I mean, what greater example is there than the Apostle Paul? I've heard testimony, I think it was Dr. Dobson had shared that, uh, was it Jeffrey Dahmer? Supposedly came to know Christ before his execution. I don't know whether that's true or not. But God knows. If it is true, I'm going to see him in heaven. Regardless of the heinous things that he did here. Because of the redemption in Christ. Think about history. Genghis Khan. Did he ever come to Christ? I doubt it. But what if he did? What about Adolf Hitler? Did he ever come to Christ? What if he did? Or Mussolini? Or Saddam Hussein? 
These are all names that are familiar to you. People that that did horrendous, heinous things in history. And are deserving of hell. Every one of them. Which, by the way, includes me. Deserving of hell. And include Paul. But because of the redemptive work of Christ, because of his mercy, because of his grace, because of his love, he found Paul. He found Jim Howard. Put your name in there. He found you. And we didn't deserve it. This is the pattern. And I love verse 17. Verse 17, I call that the great doxology. I mean, read it again. Look at it. He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Is that a doxology or what? Do you love to sing the doxology? Do you remember what the doxology is? Are you with me this morning? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I started that too high. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I got goosebumps. That's a doxology. That's what Paul does here, verse 17. He shares with Timothy. These are words of encouragement. These are the things that make him jump up off of his sofa and jump up and down and say, Praise God! I suspect he even waved his arms a bit. This is what Paul's sharing. This is the truth. This is, these are the results of sound doctrine. This is what's going to happen. God's going to reach people that you think are unreachable. Verses 18, 19, and 20. This charge I commit to you, Son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Real quick, first I see the army here. I see the army in the sense that there's an order that's been given. This charge... This order I commit to you. And the word commit is a banking term, which means very simply, I have made deposit. I've made a deposit. Timothy, you have had a deposit made in you. Go out. Fulfill your orders, your marching orders, and preach it and teach it and live it. This is a command. This is not an option. If there's one thing in the military that I learned, it was this. When they told me to jump, I asked, how high? I said, yes, sir. 
I didn't have to think about what the consequences were. I had an order. I had a duty. I had a responsibility. And I will fulfill that responsibility to the best of my ability. That's the way it was. And God says to Jim Howard, this charge, this order I have given to you. He said it to Timothy. He said it to Pastor Andy. He's under orders. He has a divine appointment. And the Navy gets involved here. Bless their hearts. The Navy gets involved here. Uh, You notice the shipwreck. Let that one sink in. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. There's a proclamation that is being made here. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) In the King James, he uses the word holding to your faith or onto your faith. The idea of that word holding there is one that is a nautical term, which means to hold fast, tie it off, make it secure. And by the way, it's not the, it's not making, you are not making the faith secure, but you can hang on to this because it is secure. And the practice is wrapped up there in verse, uh, uh, verse 19. Uh, having faith and a good conscience. A good conscience. Good conscience is a word that means the inner voice that warns that others may be watching. You ever had that feeling? Somebody's watching you. Somebody is. Let's start with the Lord. You see, it's not enough. Paul's, what's Paul saying to Timothy? Paul, it's not enough just to preach it. Paul, it's not enough just to teach it. Paul, you have to live it. You have to live it. And quite honestly, and if you take nothing else away from this message this morning, take this. Understand that the gospel, that sometimes the only gospel people are ever going to see is the life that you live. That may be the only gospel they ever see. The life that you live. Maybe you'll have opportunity to share why. And if so, seize the opportunity. But more often than not, the only thing they'll know is the life that you lead. We were studying in Colossians a few weeks ago. In chapter 1 there, Paul was telling the Colossians about the walk, the Christian walk. And my encouragement is, we're not here to run in the race, so to speak. We're not here to run through life. We're here to walk through life. And by walking through life, we, we are, have the ability to experience the blessings, to see the blessings, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of others. But by walking, others get to see you and what's going on in your life. So as Paul is talking to Timothy, he's, he's reminding him, hey, you've got orders You've got, you've got your orders. You know what you have to do. You're not only going to be preaching it, you're not only going to be teaching it, but Timothy, you're going to be living it. Set the example. Here's the pattern that has been given. We already saw that. Here's the pattern that's been given. Followed. Ladies, you ever, do ladies still sew? Use sewing machines. 
I saw on Facebook the other day a picture of a sewing machine still in this case. If you know what this is, share it. Because there are a lot of people who have no idea what that thing is. I knew what it was. And my wife is one of those who sews. And I have it on good authority, hers, that there's a pattern that's supposed to be used with that material. You put that pattern on there, you pin it together, and then you, you cut it out, and then, then you start sewing the thing together. And how the, that thing happens, I don't know, but she does it. But I know that she follows the pattern. Because if you don't follow the pattern, the shirt becomes a skirt. That's just the way it is. Timothy, follow the pattern. Follow your orders. Get out there in the trenches and live it. And then he ends with this. Verse 19, the last part of verse 19 and verse 20. Which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. <laughs> you ever want to have your name written down in the Word of God? You ever thought about it? You don't want it in there for this reason. I'm thankful my name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Only by God's grace. Paul identifies two people. Now, it was politically incorrect back then, and it's politically incorrect today to point fingers. All right? Timothy, or excuse me, Paul did. Did I say Timothy? Paul did. He didn't worry about being politically correct. He just pointed it and said, here they are. I'm thankful we still have pastors today who are willing to point a finger and say, listen, this is wrong. What that person says, what Rob Bell said in his book is wrong. Love wins. It's blasphemous. And people that are reading it and believing it are going to hell. Because they are following what this guy said. And not what the word of God said. Now is that pointing a finger or what? I know Rob Bell. He was a pastor down there in Grand Rapids where I was at. And there was a time when he wasn't like that. And it's incredibly frustrating to see somebody who was held in such high esteem go off the deep end. Timothy, here are two men who went off the deep end. Now, is Rob Bell a believer? I think he is. And yes, his theology will be corrected one day. Are these two men believers? I think they probably are. This book was addressed to believers. Actually, it was addressed to Timothy, but talking about believers. Hmm. Then what does it mean here when it says, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan? Folks, this is one of the most sobering things that a pastor or a church could ever do. 
You're familiar with Matthew 18. You're familiar with the discipline process. And if there is a brother or sister who's caught up in sin and the discipline process is being followed, and you know, you understand that church discipline exists not for the purpose of of beating somebody up, but for the purpose of restoration, of bringing them back into a relationship with Christ, a fellowship with Christ, back into the fellowship. But if that person doesn't respond after the process is unfolded, there comes a place where that individual is, is voted out of membership. And my friend, I want you to understand that what is happening there is exactly what's happening here. In verse number, was it verse 20? Yeah, verse 20. This person is being removed from the, if you will, the, the, the environment, from the cocoon, from the safety of the body of Christ, the local body. They're not being removed from heaven, but they are being removed from that local assembly, ecclesia. And that is sobering. Because what is it that the text here is saying that they are being delivered into? Understandably, somebody who reaches this point is a person who has, who has a hardened shell, is unwilling to listen to the truth, unwilling to follow in fellowship with Christ, unwilling to listen to the counsel of godly people. Paul says he, he remanded these people to the domain of Christ, uh, to the domain of Satan, to the devil. And that, my friend, is incredibly sobering. Unfortunately, more often than not, those people that are disciplined don't think anything of it. But the reality is incredibly, incredibly serious. Now, obviously, I don't have the time this morning to delve much more into detail. But I want you to understand, as Paul writes to Timothy, he's telling him, listen, preach the whole counsel. Preach the whole thing. Teach the whole thing. Model the whole thing. And that includes the good things, the easy things, and that includes the hard things. That's my take out of this. That includes the hard stuff. Because this is never easy. It never is. Timothy, model it. I'm grateful for many people that have been a part of my life. People who have modeled ministry, who have modeled Christianity, who have modeled that relationship with Christ in ways that are priceless. I'm reminded of the Bill Brocks. Brother Mitchell, you won't know him. He was the state rep in Ohio. used to utter the word glory when he got excited. Glory! And if you were sleeping, you weren't anymore. 
I'm thankful for the Elf Nelsons. Some of you remember that name. The John Woods. How about Maynard Bell? And other men. Men who were not in ministry. But men who loved the Lord. And walked with Christ. And modeled Christianity in ways that were worthy of imitation. God grant us the ability to do that. To be worthy of being imitated. (laughs) My son sent me a picture yesterday. My oldest son, not my youngest. Sent me a picture of my my other two granddaughters. And he had them out in the yard. And they were both riding Little John. Now you understand a Little John is a garden tractor. Green one. A 345, water-cooled, 48-inch deck. Both of them, individually, were cutting the grass. And you need to understand, when I, I saw the picture, he sent two pictures. I saw the pictures, and I had to respond. I said, oh, the memories. Cherish these moments. Because my boys, they learned from me how to drive a tractor, how to cut the grass, how to bale hay, how to milk a cow, you know, all those things. And I learned from my dad and my grandparents how to do all of those things. And and there are some things today that, that are in our culture and in our day are useless. Nobody does it that way anymore. But I'm grateful that I learned. And I followed the pattern. Oh, that people would follow the pattern that godly people set. And we as pastors... Oh, here's a spot where I can talk about Pastor Molyneux. Don't put him on a pedestal. Do not put him up on a pedestal that is unreachable. That's impossible. He is a man. Just like I am, just like some of you are. He's a man. Called of God to do the work of the ministry. He will set an example. But understand that he's not perfect. He will make mistakes. You know what you need to do? Love him. Love him. Your pastor, take it from somebody who's been there, your pastor will break his back to minister to you, to nourish you, to love you if he knows that you love him. I can't explain it. That's just how God has built us to be. Let him serve as the example, as the model, knowing that he's not perfect. And when those imperfections show their their ugly head, smile, hug him. You can hug him. He's a hugger. Okay? He's a hugger. I have no idea if he's a hugger or not. I'm just setting him up. (laughs) Love on him. Love on him. And Jessica and the kids.
Timothy, be the example. Jim, be the example. Andy, be the example that God's people can follow. You be the example. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to come into this place, for the freedoms we enjoy, for the examples that have been set before us. God, if Paul can come to know you, then there are those around us that can do so as well. Make us faithful as we continue to pray, as we continue to testify and reach out and be that example. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.